Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined by my indubitable co-hosts, uh, Tyler and Casey. That was right off the, right off the dome. What's going on, everyone? Yeah, Mike. Hi. Everyone is on their way to vacation. I'm pulling Tyler off of his uh, his vacation today. I'm in Nantucket, in case you're stuck in New York. Sorry about that. Before we get into it today, I want to tell you about something very, very exciting going on this August from the 11th through the 13th up in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Now, if you're listening saying, huh, Bretton Woods, why is that familiar? That's because back in 1944, there was a conference there that literally decided the fate of the monetary system. That's where they decided to put the dollar at the center of everything. That's where they came up with the IMF and the World Bank. And right now, 70 or 80 years later, we're all looking around saying, hey, that monetary system they decided not working out so great for everyone. So we are hosting an executive only, very exclusive summit up there, capped at 250 people to be talking about the past, the present, and what the future of the monetary system looked like. Very, very exciting lineup. We've got many guests who are on the show, Grant Williams, Lynn Alden, Luke Groman, you name it. Head over to the website to check it out, www.blockworks.co. I'm gonna link it in the show notes too. Head over to the event page. You put in the code on the margin. You're gonna get 5% off. That is from me. Boom, click now. Thank me later. Mesmerized by your background. It's like you match your shirt with the plates behind you. You know, Tyler, thank you for noticing. Thank you. I was worried that no one was going to say anything and all my hard work was going to have gone to waste. Did you get new plates? New decorations? I am not, I am not in my own home. I am in Nantucket right now. I am crashing. Uh, I'm looking out. You can't see it. I'm looking at a beautiful body of water. Is it a lake? Is it a harbor? I don't really know. It's probably not a lake because it's Nantucket and that wouldn't make sense. But a little, let's see if I can show you guys this. Little Whoa, next boy. Whoa, boy. Look it. You like that? Ooh, look at you. Look at you, Tyler. I can see you're out there sipping on a, uh, sipping on a little pina colada. <laughs> nice. Case, how about you? You're chilling in New York? Yeah, I'm in a 400 square foot apartment. It's 90 degrees here, but I'm really happy that you guys are in such great locations. Yeah, thanks. It's not like um, it's not like someone made you turn off the AC either for uh, for sound fidelity. Yeah, so. yeah, you know those window units they get loud. So what they are you certainly do? do. All right, all right. Let's uh, truck on through here. It's uh, it's Friday. Uh, let's get the weekend started. Um, just to give a roundup of the major stories we're going to be talking about. So Larry Fink came out and he predicts inflation uh, is not going to be transitory as June CPI came in at 5.4%. Um, Powell testified before the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, it's had a whole bunch of really interesting stuff that we're going to be picking Casey's brain on. Um, we're going to be talking about bank earnings, um, which was largely a beat on earnings, but uh, some revenue disappointments and the stocks have been trading sideways. Again, we're going to rely on Casey. And then we're just going to talk about, uh, you know, finish things up talking about the crypto markets Um They've really just been consolidating for the last couple of months. Uh, everything has been sideways. Nothing is feeling interesting. No one is excited about it. And it does seem like they're facing some pretty major headwinds as well. So we're going to get into that. Um, and on that optimism, let's tackle our first story here, uh, which is Mr. Larry Fink coming out swinging, uh, saying inflation is actually not going to be uh, transitory. So a little bit of background in case uh, you've been living under a rock for the last 50 years. Uh, Larry Fink is the CEO at BlackRock. And he came out in an interview and said that he does not see inflation as transitory and that the U.S. Federal Reserve will have to react to higher inflation numbers. 
Uh, Fink's comments come on the back of what Jamie Dimon said back in June, uh, which is that JP Morgan is hoarding cash in anticipation of inflation driving an increase of rates. Um, quote, Fink said, I'm not calling for 1970s inflation, but I just think we're going to have it above 2%, probably closer to 35 or 4%. Uh, which, again, has big ramifications for uh, financial markets and a whole bunch of different types of assets. Um, what do you guys think about what Larry Fink said, and what do you guys think about the, the CPI numbers in general? I think Fink, it's really a weird thing for him to say inflation is not going to be transitory. He was, he was calling Jerome Powell you know, back in March of 2020 when the pandemic hit, and clearly was the biggest beneficiary of all this Fed action. He'd think he'd He'd just toe the party line and say, yeah, it's tr- transitory because he's getting the benefit of all this. Like, do we, you know, <laughs> he is a direct beneficiary of it. Yeah. It's like an ironic thing for him to actually call for inflation. It must mean that, like, they really, really see it and it's pretty confident in seeing that inflation. So, yeah. uh, and w- the funny part is the market reaction, which is yield, yield curves flattening, the dollar's going up. Growth and inflation are rolling over, and but the inflation numbers are are rising, right? So if we are in this like full in, inflationary period, you wouldn't see that, which makes me think we are just in this post-truth world where Jerome Powell can you know, basically create negative real rates by you know, him and Janet Yellen can like rejigger the economy and say like I'm going to use the cash this month so we don't have to issue as uh, treasuries, and then Jerome Powell's matching, basically issuance and demand on bonds. So it's this funny world where rates will just stay low and inflation will be higher. We're going to be negative real rates when Case, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Tyler. I think it's pretty telling of their expectations going forward with the cash that they're keeping. I think that most people agree that we're not going to see 5% inflation for forever. But the question is, when will it settle and where will it settle? I I think that it's going to settle higher than we've been experiencing for quite some time. And I think that, you know, again, I think those are the two big questions. When's it going to start to go down? How far down will it go? Again, I don't think it's going to stay at 5%, maybe 3% in the long term. But again, that's a lot higher than most people are used to for the last several decades. Yeah. Where do you invest if it's like, say say it settles at 3% or 3.5%. So you're losing 3%, you're 3.5% by holding cash. But you're also losing, uh, say, 2% of the productivity gain. Productivity gains are actually five percent. That means you're losing five percent by holding cash and not investing. That five percent is the tax, right? That's that month by month. The tax on the assets that you, if you don't invest, if you don't buy risk assets, you're getting penalized. So if they don't tighten and we're just in this, people are. Screwed. Money left and right. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of the the typical thing, right? Like people want to put money in hard assets, right? Like, um, you know, 
real estate probably actually looks pretty good. It's this weird thing where, at least for residential real estate, you're looking at all-time highs right now. Um, but you know, people like to talk about the hard cap supply in Bitcoin. Well, guess what? The original hard cap supply asset is real estate. There's that great Mark Twain quote, buy earth, they're not making it anymore. You know, they're, they're not. These are very uh, fixed supply. Um, I don't know. I, it's like, Tyler, you talk about this a lot. There's this shift between kind of labor and capital. Ultimately, if you're, what are you talking about if you're talking about 3 to 5% inflation? You're most likely talking about wage growth and more of the income in the U.S. coming in the form of actual wages as opposed to capital assets like capital appreciation. So you'd expect stocks to probably not do super well in an environment like that. And I guess you just try to own earn own a, like hard assets like Bitcoin, real estate, gold until real growth comes back. And then that will lead to yields and bonds and, and appreciation in stocks. But I, I don't know. Um, yeah. Like with $3.5 trillion in, in fiscal though, growth rates could come back. Like that money will find its way into the economy, you know, once they really get it juiced. But we're talking $4.5 trillion in fiscal stimulus that's going to be coming, which is like, I don't know, what's, it's like 6x the financial crisis. When the market's at all-time highs, it's just, it's bonkers. So even if the Fed does taper a little bit, I don't know, the supplies, the supply of fiscal and all this stimulus is far outweighs the rest of that. Yeah. I think it just depends on how sustained the fiscal is, right? Like, but there's a pretty, there's a pretty good argument to be made. There's nothing so temporary or so permanent as a temporary government program. And it, you can see, we can see on the monetary side how easy it is to get addicted to, to stimulus. And it kind of makes sense that, that once we start doing these trillion dollar fiscal programs, like, hey, these things are pretty good. They actually kind of work. Maybe we should get some more of them in the door, you know? Um, it's yeah. like trying to take away a kid's allowance, kind of. Um, I don't know. Um, but if you look at actually what came out of uh, this month's CPI print, so just to get a little bit more specific on those numbers, it rose 5.4% year over year. Uh, if you remember back to May, there were those blockbuster numbers. Uh, there's the reason why we're looking at such a jump in terms of CPI is the base effect, right? We're comparing to last year, which was obviously the economy shut down because of COVID. The directional, how, how June's numbers look was going to tell us a lot about the future. So this 5.4% is actually pretty meaningful because this was the month we were like, well, May was really the easiest base effect month and it's actually accelerated since then. So, you know, it actually does point to more sustained inflation. Um, and then again, there's that kind of core... Uh, CPI, um, core, which excludes uh, volatile food and energy, and that rose 4.5%. That's the biggest jump in 30 years. Um, so that's really what we're talking about here, which is pretty pretty significant. Um, in, in the owner's equivalent rent part of it, it hasn't even gone up that much yet. That's why I don't think it's transitory. It's like that's that's been kind of dead. And now that you're seeing like the demand for housing, you should see that rise too. So that's where it shouldn't be transitory if, if you take it out a couple of months. But I guess we won't wait and see. I have a question about the core PCI. Do either of you know why food and energy costs are excluded from that? Why is that? Because Volatility, honestly, I, I don't know. Yeah, why is that? Because like, if that's the, what they say. Yeah, they're very volatile. I get it. But also, if the point of inflation, why, why do you? Why do we care about inflation? 
when the cost of living for the average person in the U.S. is going up, governments don't like that because it's basically another tax. They can't afford their life. Civil unrest ensues. Okay. Well, if you look at the average person, how much does energy and food make up the basket of their costs? It's probably extremely high. Why? You can't exclude food. It just defeats the entire purpose of what central banks measure inflation for. So that's what I don't understand. I, I was looking at that and being like, why are they excluding that? <laughs> um, I don't know any of those. Like when you look at those shadow bank statistics it, of like all the basket of like 5,000 goods, that makes more sense to me as like a, an inflation, this nitpicky thing where you just take certain aspects of the economy. It seems so stupid because like, for someone who's a college student, clearly like the student loan inflation is like off the charts, but like that's not really CPI. Like either is the stuff you've been talking about in your notes this week, like like housing and that's that's like not a big piece of house prices. And the house price thing is nuts. The house price thing is if I could just drop one statistic, this blew my mind when I was doing this research. So in nineteen forty, the average price of a house was $2,900, $2,938 or something like that. In inflation-adjusted dollars today, that's $57,000. If that seems insanely low to you, do you want to guess what the median, sorry, I meant to say median. Do you know what the median home price was last month or Q1 of this year? I do. <laughs> yeah, $350,000. At the same time, right, the average wage uh, of someone coming out of college in 19... 19- 40 was $956 or 33% of what you could, that was 33% of a house. Today, the average wage is $50,000 or about 14%. So you could make a very easy argument that it is literally 10 times harder, more fiscally difficult to own a home today uh, than it was in 1940. Um, And that's not even considering, like, that's like very basic math. If you consider like all the weird taxes. Are you saying that was basic math, Tyler? Did you not just hear that off the top of my head? Yeah, a big math guy. Big math guy. <laughs> like if you go, if you really take into account all the extra, like the costs of like maintenance and all this other stuff that like they probably didn't have in taxes and weird inspection fees and you know having an arborist come in and check your house for like all this weird stuff that's now implemented to make it so much more expensive. It used to be like, here's, you know, $3,000 for the house. Boom. Here's a, here's a contract. Sign it right here. Do you know getting a mortgage now involves like 10,000 middlemen? It's crazy. They, they give you like a full cavity search and they're like, could I have your 2014 like, you know, uh, W2 and then uh, maybe your 20, 2008 W2. I was like 16 at the time. You know? <laughs> Why do you need that? Tyler, I'm going to keep a scoreboard of every time you say cavity search on this show. Yeah, it's it's more times search. than you would think. It's come up more times than you would statistically think is uh, is probable. It's, it's my proxy for like how like bureaucratic things have gotten. Is the full cavity search. You get a full cavity search. Like getting to Mexico for me this, for this vacation is like, you got to go customs and then you know there's second round of customs where they do your bags it's just like every step of the way the processes have become less efficient to the detriment of like the actual consumer i agree all right guys we said we were going to do a, a 
abbreviated version of the roundup today. We spent a lot of time on this first story, so let's keep let's keep moving along here. Uh, and Casey, I'm going to rely on you for this one. What's going on, everyone? Excited to talk to you about one of my favorite new companies in the space, a company called Matrixport. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know we spend a lot of time talking about this crazy environment of low yields that we're all living in. The big question is, if inflation is around the corner, how are we all going to protect our wealth? Well, Matrixport has some really, really interesting solutions I think you should check out. And the big thing is they, they do so many things, it's almost hard to cover everything in 30 or 45 seconds or whatever we have here. Two things that I want you to walk away with. One, they allow you to earn up to 30% yield. Two, they are leveling the playing field between institutional and retail investors. A little bit of background about this company. They are one of the fastest growing platforms based out of Asia. The really cool thing about these guys, they're literally a one-stop shop. Everything you need, custody, spot trading, OTC, fixed income, structured products, lending, asset management. These guys literally do it all. When they walk me through the demo, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Here's what they've basically done. All those crazy structured products that are available to institutions that allow them to earn so much yield, they've basically taken them, packaged them up in a way that anyone can understand it, and they made it available to their entire audience of investors. That is just a freaking awesome thing to do, very cool mission, but also it allows you to manage your risk in a super sophisticated way and earn huge, huge yields on this platform to protect you from the pernicious effects of inflation. So for example, you can start earning 30% in APY on USDC today if you go to onthemargin.link slash matrixport. Again, that is onthemargin.link slash matrixport. I don't know what you're waiting for. Go check them out. Thank me later. But uh, Powell testified before the Senate Banking Committee this week. Uh, he said some pretty interesting things. And I will say, doing research for this, it was interesting to see how different um, how different publications reported on this because they had some very different kind of spins. But overall, I think some of the most important thing was that uh, Chairman Jerome Powell said that recent inflation was uncomfortably above uh, the levels that cent- the central banks were seeking. I included uh, the two-day testimony in which he sounded somewhat less confident about the economic outlook and the Fed's policy path in the year earlier. Obviously, being less uh, confident in the economic outlook has meant that they're not talking about tapering asset purchases anytime soon. Case, I know you wrote about this. What, what were your takeaways from what Powell said? Well, how was my spin? Your spin was, your spin was great, Casey. Give All us, right. give us the spin note, here. We'll get started. <laughs> um, yeah, so Powell pretty much said what he's been saying for quite some time. Inflation is transitory. Uh, he is really coming back to that lumber example and saying that lumber prices went down and everything else will too. It's supply chain, it's bottleneck, it's pent up demand. All of these things that you know he's been saying for, again, quite some time, he is really doubling down on. Um, lawmakers did, they, I mean, they had some tough questions. They wanna know when exactly inflation's gonna come down. They wanna know why the Fed doesn't seem to be more concerned about it. You know, they have constituents that are seeing higher prices and, and they're concerned. Um, so yeah, we, on, on terms of inflation, it's really much of the same. I think that the data that we really need to be watching leading into the Fed's July meeting at the end of this month is the jobs data. I think that when those numbers start to go up, we'll, we'll eventually kind of start to see more of a taper discussion. But again, it's not only when they start tapering, it's the pace of how they start tapering. It's where are they going to focus on MBS or bonds? So there are a lot of questions beyond the one that everyone seems to be asking, which is when will they start tapering? And the answer to that, again, is we don't know. 
Yeah. Do you see that uh, John Williams uh, got like roasted on what John Williams being the head of the New York Fed when he was like, yeah, mortgage backed securities, treasury securities. I see them as all the same thing. It's just a tool to control interest rates. Yeah. Like, I don't know about that, friend. They are different things. <laughs> like, uh, they are certainly different things. Um, he got kind of dragged across the coals there. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's looking like the the trains are coming off the track a little bit for him. I, it, you know, with the amount of analysis that goes into reading Jerome Powell's facial expressions and how he construes basic sentences and stuff like that, yeah, he didn't look as confident as I've seen him in the past. Um, yeah, I, I also really I would not want his job. It does not seem very fun <laughs> at the moment. So I do feel him there. Yeah, you know what's interesting if you're talking about like kind of like a game theory thing, is he's doing an incredible job, I would say. I, I hate him in a lot of respects because, like, you know, you jacked up housing and then you act like, you know, you or all these side effects of what monetary policy really does. But if you're talking about, like, the future of the United States and matching, you know, a giant fiscal plan with low rates so that you know, the U.S. can keep growing and the side effects are just like really high asset prices, I would love for him to just come out and say the truth. You know, and that's the thing. I get that. Get everybody on the same page and be like, listen, here's the deal. We're going to do massive fiscal stimulus. We're going to reorganize our entire country. We're going to redo the roads. We're going to do climate change. We're going to invest in the future of America. And to do that, we're going to keep rates really, really low. And that's what's going to happen. And like, can you come out and say the truth and get everybody like you can't? But you can't go out and say that. I don't think he could go out and say that, and people would buy into it. I think you need a massive. You need that's political will, and you need like yeah. and a massive exogenous event to summon that political will. Because Tyler, like, even imagine you trying to describe that to like the everyday person. We're going to keep rates low to fund this. People don't understand what that means. They don't know what that means. They're like, we're spending money, spending money equals bad. That's like the, that's the financial education that most people have. I don't, I, I think you need, like if you look at, if you go back and look at history, just to back up my assertion here, like if you look at big reorganizations and redistributions of wealth, they actually almost always come after wars or attacks. And it's because I think the reason why that actually is, is because you need, you need something to like easily point to and say, this is why we're doing this, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And have everyone agree to it and buy into it. Uh, I just think you need you need something. And COVID might have been that something, to be honest. Well, I, I think it was, and it, I think my biggest issue is like, to act like there's not side effects of this stuff, that the market at all time high, CPI at 5%, you know, and savings rates astronomical, and he's still printing 120 a month billion a month is like, I mean, what are you, what are you, why are you really doing that? And the truth is, is I think it's just to finance the fiscal plans because you need to have like low rates, like the interest rate expense is at record lows, which is why the debt code is like manageable. Yeah. So I would just like some honesty and maybe the problem with honesty would be that the bond market would immediately sell off. They're like, holy shit, like they're going to keep spending and you do all this infrastructure. And he, so you need to incrementally just kind of like be a bureaucrat. Maybe that's the play is just, you know, constantly expect 
the, the negative real rates and he's going to keep these things low, match supply with demand. And the fiscal push is just going to keep money pumping to like the cyclical parts of, of the economy, the high capex side. Yeah. Yeah, it's very possible. I think, I mean, one of the interesting things to like, there's a lot of focus being attached to the space race right now. It's like billionaire space race and people are like, oh, so disgusting. You know, a lot of other lewd things I'm not going to say on this podcast, but like, yeah, a lot of comparisons are being made right now. And my interpretation watching that is like, when you think about what the economy is, that's just a way to organize people's time to be honest, like that's how I kind of view the economy. And a space race would be really interesting. Like you need these kind of big goals to rally around, to organize people, you know, that, so to me, like a space race, and a lot of innovation came out of the last space race. If you look at a lot of the commercial technologies in the 60s, 70s, 80s, those came out of experiments at NASA. It came out of DARPA. And the reason is, is because in order to invent, you kind of need to like do stuff. It's actually been a takeaway for me of BlockWorks. Like you create your own luck. You don't come up with interesting ideas, like sitting in a room being like, oh, I wonder if like this would work. You have to go out and do stuff and meet people and try things and be like, wow, this didn't work for this, but it would work for this. And that's mm -hmm. how you actually come to a lot of the stuff. And I think the reorganization of resources into a space race I don't know. That would be very interesting, but I, I, I agree yeah. with you. Was... I, I, I agree with that. I think that's, that's actually a great thing for the, the economy. Let's, let's move in that direction. Cause like, no offense if I see another SaaS company get like, you know, financing for you know, making my email a little bit more efficient, I could give a fuck. <laughs> excuse, my, excuse my French. But like, I think for the past 10 years, you just get these like crazy, you know, software programmers, they get all the money. And they make your life like this much more efficient and they, they don't make my life more efficient. Maybe I'm just a Luddite. I can't yeah. figure out how to use any of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they all have billion dollar valuations. Yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of playing, but I think you need that government. Like you need the government to incentivize like high CapEx, like big, big projects, project finance, like, like Mark Andreessen talked about. In that yeah. It's like, you need the government to basically incentivize it to unlock new innovations. Otherwise, like you just keep milking the consumer. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving along to the next story here, uh, we're going to be talking about bank earnings. Uh, Case, again, you wrote about this this week. So talk to us a little bit about what you wrote about uh, JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs just to get things started. Yeah. So profits were both higher than expected. Um, JP Morgan had they exceeded expectations on profit, but their revenue fell, which was interesting. Um, Goldman Sachs exceeded on all levels. Um, I think that the key thing to watch here is really loaning and bank lending. Um, even as rates were low, many U.S. lenders saw a decline in loans in 2020, and lending really hasn't risen to pre-pandemic levels. I think that's for a lot of reasons. I mean, when people are in lockdown, A, they're not taking out loans to renovate their homes, for example. So the demand just wasn't there. But also a lot of experts are saying that the consumer is health, healthy enough that they don't really need loans at this point. They were able to add to their savings throughout the last year, saving money on travel and childcare and going out to eat and everything. So I don't know. I, I think that it's kind of like inflation. We kind of know what's going to happen. Lending will probably pick up, but we don't really know when or how, where it's going to fall on the spectrum. But 
banks are willing to lend, the demand just doesn't seem to be there. Hmm. Isn't that weird? Like, you, you'd expect if the demand to borrow, I mean, there's no demand to borrow when rates are this low. So it makes me want to like just lever up and buy like 50 houses. <laughs> well, houses are too you expensive sure? right now. It's tough. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I I think that there's again, it, it's like jobs data, inflation, and every everything else. There's a lot of factors, but I don't know. We'll see loans pick up eventually, of course, but how quickly we don't really know, and, and that's a question that a lot of these executives are wondering too. Yeah. What about on the corporate side, Casey? So that's kind of the the cases that you were talking about. There is almost like. Um, you know, loans to individuals. What's the, I mean, did you kind of pick up anything on just the demand for lending to smaller, large businesses? Yeah. So small businesses, the demand obviously was not there during lockdown and in the last year or so, you're not going to be expanding your business when there's a looming recession or restaurants, for example, they had a terrible Mm. year. So the first thing on their mind is not taking out a big loan. I think that in the next quarter, that's really an area to be watching is are small businesses starting to take out more risky loans? And I think that that will be really telling of just the overall economic health and and recovery and where we are. Because again, if they feel more comfortable doing that, I think that that is painting a more positive picture going forward. Yeah. Um, I wrote, I wrote the, uh, the newsletter today based on, um, small business lending actually, and just the destruction of the regional bank model. Um, and it's like, there are all these quotes that you can find where it's like banking is really simple. Basically just don't let your loans fail and you'll be okay. And I did, uh, yeah, they worded it more cleverly than, than what I just said, but, uh, basically words to that effect. And, um, one thing that I did notice, at least with Goldman, is that when the pan- at the onset of the pandemic, uh, last year, basically a bunch of banks essentially reserved, um, you know, they, they literally pulled like $10 billion or something like that out to reserve against uh, the risk of defaults on their loans. And it looks like actually there were a lot less defaults um, than they thought was going to, than the amount that they reserved for. So the way that that works back onto their P&L is that they recognize that essentially as profit because it was a write down before. Um, so I guess that's kind of positive, right? There were way less defaults and like some really smart people. I actually have started to do this thing. I've, I've been going back and listening to podcasts from uh, March, April, and May of 2020 at the onset of the pandemic, just because I think it's interesting to see what people were saying back then. Um, and it's, you guys should do it. It's freaking interesting. People were really wrong. They were really wrong about everything, like dead wrong. It almost makes me think the next time something like this happens, I'm just not going to listen to anything that anyone is saying because, uh, you know, what people were like is like, this is going to be permanent economic damage to small businesses. You're going to see X percentage of bankruptcies. Liquidity does not equal solvency. And at the time, I remember listening to it being like, wow, that makes sense. That makes sense. Why aren't more people listening to these guys? And it turns out they were wrong. <laughs> they were they were dead wrong. Uh, and it was interesting to watch um, Bank of, or, uh, Goldman finally just say, hey, all that, that, you know, the, that money that we've been reserving against these loan uh, defaults, we're going to recognize it as profit. Well, to play contra on that for a sec is I think a lot of those businesses did go out of business, the small ones, the ones, and what's really fascinating. So we're in Mexico right now for vacation and that explains the little bear and the tequila. Yeah. <laughs> and, this, like, <laughs> and that gentleman. 
Yeah. But so get this. And this is this gave me a new like view on stuff a little bit. But there was like there's like fifty restaurants down here. Closed doors, clearly couldn't make it. If you're in Mexico and the banking system is not like they can't just bail you out because their interest rates, their banking system isn't as they're not the reserve currency of the world, right? In some ways, all of that money printing and you know, fiscal from the US dollar should funnel into like countries who were partners, right? And and from that perspective, maybe that's why we're doing this on such a mass scale is because they've even made comments. We're the central bank of the world. And if, you know, if we have a, a financial crisis that follows through to every emerging it's like basically tied to us as trade partners. So like there has been so much pain it's just that every American business got the benefit of being the reserve currency and the PPP and like having the Fed at their back. And like in America, it was it's way way better because we have that, all the benefits of that stuff. So like I feel really thankful for that in hindsight. So like I've been giving like Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen a lot of shit, but like if you look in Mexico, like there's these businesses are not. And there's no way you're going to get a bank loan to bring them back until like things really, really heat up. So I don't know where, where I'm really going with it. Besides the fact that like, there's still real damage in other parts of the world, and they don't have the infrastructure that yes. Here's a hypothetical thought experiment for you. Do you think equities would do better? Do you think investors would be more bullish? If let's say in, in one scenario from year one to year 10, uh, growth is completely flat, doesn't move a muscle. Wherever you are today in terms of revenue and earnings, you are in 10 years. Or do you think we'd be in a better or worse spot if actually we tanked for a little while, but then ended up in the exact same place, but we were building towards the end? I'm a, I'm a free market capitalist, so the latter. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's what my gut says too, because people tend to extrapolate stuff and it actually might have been missing. It's kind of an interesting thought experiment to just think like, what if 40% of small businesses went away, but then new small businesses sprang up and took their place and were growing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I, I, my heart defaults to that. <laughs> well, then at Mine, the point, yeah. like, We've been doing this for so long that it's just become normal to bailouts. Yeah. Yeah. Not to get all crypto-y on you here, but I kind of think like, I mean, what we're really talking about here is how much do the Treasury and the Fed speak to one another? And I think the reason why people blame the Fed for a lot of this is they're operating under the assumption that they really are an independent institution, but they're part of the government apparatus. I get that they don't sit in the same thing and they're different, but like, I think it's kind of naive to, to suspect that the Fed is not going to do what's, they have the same goal at the end of the day. It's like being in a, it's like a cross-functional organizations in a company. It's like one might be sales, one might be marketing, but they're, they're going towards the same thing. And if your view of the world is to say the Fed really is an independent organization and they're not going to act in how they, what they think the United States needs from them, then I can see why you think that they're the root of all evil. 
if you have the view that they are just like any any other of the like the treasury just another branch of u.s government and they're going to act in the best you know in try to do what they think is best for the for the government and the people then i i, I don't know um i th that's that's my personal view that's why i don't blame central bankers for a lot of what's happened but what you basically have is an imperfect form of governance and i think the argument that crypto or bitcoin is making is that whenever you know monetary policy just because it's it is actually pretty effective and when you have the opportunity to kind of step in and fix things just it's just human nature and the nature of politics and of people to want to step in and do that too much and i think that's a lot of what people are getting at here with this um it's effective for certain lots of the economy. Yeah. Like Larry Bird benefited from it better than, you know, Joe, Joe Schmo's small business. You know. <laughs> like he's a So that's where, that's, I guess, the sacrifice you make is like with a blunt force monetary policy tool, you just make big institutions bigger. Yeah. Speaking of crypto, by the way, let's get to our last story. I just want to talk about where you guys think we are in the crypto market here. Casey, you've been reporting on this stuff. What's your, I mean, we've been trading sideways now for a little while. The sheen of the bull market is off our backs. Where, how do you see things right now? Um, you know, I, well, I think the inflation discussion, again, comes back to this. Everyone loves to say that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. Yet we're seeing really high inflation and Bitcoin is still down. And I asked a lot of people that this week and no one really has an answer. I don't know. I, I love as a reporter, I love to ask people what their price predictions are. And, you know, as employees at a lot of these companies, they never want to give an answer, which I understand. But I, I really don't know what to expect. I, I think that I didn't see the sell off kind of extending this far. So in the next six months. I'm not sure. What about you? I'm going to pick on Tyler first. Tyler, what do you think? I'm actually like pretty bullish. Yeah. And I see this as like, is the, the, the super cycle still in play? Yes. I think it is. I think this is a temporary hiccup because Bitcoin was growing so fast. It actually had the chance of destabilizing China. Now look what China's doing. They stopped, this is a centralizing, they're, they're trying to centralize it. They stopped these, uh, well, they didn't stop these. They basically are, are stopping Chinese listings in the US going forward. Um, they, they stopped their coin mining and cryptocurrency stuff. Binance, which is, they took over Hong Kong. Binance, which is now in Hong Kong, is now facing like, I think of the CCP in a way. I think that's really what's going on. I'm not positive. That's just speculation. But there's been some real weird stuff going on with finance. And it's this is all the Chinese centralizing power so that they can do the digital yuan and create that you know, internal centralized currency so that you can move the internal. And so much, I think it was like 75% of the Bitcoin mining was in China. Now it's at 30 dropping. So we're, we're getting close, and the US is now expanding their big campaign. This is just a transfer. Could we hit 20K before we rally again? Maybe. I don't know. If we break 30K, it's probably, we're probably going to 20. 
but longer term, it's like exactly what you want. You want it's naturally decentralized away from autocratic rule. And that's so bullish to me long term. Not only that, but then you, you still have like, you have this phenomenon in the public markets where there's no yield. And you have life insurance companies still coming in. Like, and in fact, they'll probably come in even more if China is not a big player in this ecosystem. Yeah. So it's in the natural national interest to invest in it from the jobs perspective. You know, if China's out of the way, like this can be a huge growth innovation part of the economy. So say say in the next three months we get some more China FUD and we bounce around, whatever. I think after that, it's probably game on because like yields are going lower and in the public markets and yields are there in Bitcoin. I made 10% Bitcoin yield in my stacking my stacks. You know, like that, if Bitcoin rallies a little bit too, I'm making way more than you'd ever make in the public markets. So I think the risk reward is way better with Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, I agree with all that, Tyler. Um, I, I think we're just watching the, the super cycle play out. Honestly, I think we're living the super cycle. This is just when Suzu talked about the super cycle, people heard up only. But that's not what he actually said. What he actually said was crypto can't forever play out in these super predictable four year boom bust cycles because that's just not how assets work. Right. At some point, it either makes it or it doesn't. And that could mean that there are shorter bear markets. It could mean it's just choppier in general, like a less less uh, you know predictable, but still path upwards. And I just think that we're seeing a, a down period um, in that in that super cycle narrative, because when you actually look at the space now in terms of the money that's flowing in, the quality of the projects, the entrepreneurship, real use cases being developed, this is so unbelievably different from 2017. It's so like if you were around then, it was it was nuts. Frankly, it's amazing anyone stuck around. It was like it was it was vapor. It was vapor, um, and there was nothing but Bitcoin. And now there are all these really promising projects, use cases with real traction, users. Imagine that real users. Like, I just think the fundamentals are really strong. So, but the big thing, the big difference in twenty seventeen is you have like funds like Andreessen, two point two billion as a seed fund is huge, huge. And they're investing in projects regardless of what's happening in China. Like, you see it on that Axios Pro Rata every day. Like, there's crypto funds being financed at crazy valuations. That wouldn't happen if, like, this didn't have legs. Yeah. You know, if, if, if China really was going to, like, it's been extraordinarily bullish in the face of all the, the Chinese and the holdings that me, Yeah. I will say, we talked a couple weeks ago about Andreessen Horowitz's fundraise, and we said there's a, it was a bit of a lagging indicator. What I have heard from VC funds, and this makes total and complete sense to me, is now this is the time when they're going to start doubling down on deals because the insane hype of a couple weeks ago is gone. Valuations have come back down to earth. They all did their big fundraises, and they're just going to start plowing money into this space. Um, so I think you can look out to see super hyperactive VC funds over the course of the next, um, however many months. And, and 
Kaboot, last little t- thing is mm-hmm. I think you're getting the jump from as those companies have a lot of cash on their balance sheets from the VC investment, they got to hire people, right? And if you can, you're going to have more capital to get more talent, leave other sectors of the economy when you have that. So we've seen a lot of those behind the scenes, all the PR emails we get. It's like, hey, this company has 100 positions open. This company has 50 positions open. Like, that's a, these are, they're trying, this is a land grab for human capital. And that, that's slowly happening before our eyes. Agreed. Agreed. Guys, it's Friday. It's three o'clock. Tyler's on vacation. We already stole him away from his wife uh, for too long. Um, what is it, Case? What, what are you up to this weekend? I'm going to a Yankees game tonight. I, I don't know who they're playing. Couldn't tell you that. But it is going to be hot and fun, but also hot. Yeah. It's a New Yorker. My team. Yeah. I cannot but tell first, you. I'm going I'm to turn on the AC in my apartment after we get off this. <laughs> I know. Call. Sorry, Casey. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. What are you doing? I'm in Nantucket right now. Um, I wonder if I can show you. This is my view that I've been sitting and looking out at. Wow. So after we do this, well, no, I still have more work. But soon I will be on a beach uh, drinking at high noon, channeling my inner prez. I mean, not like him exactly, but you know, similar. Um, what about you, Tyler? Who's your little, who's your little friend back there? Oh, this guy. We're about to go jump in the water. Um, <laughs> it's a little, little overcast, but and, and you know what? I mean, you'll still find a way to get sunburned. I have faith in you. Oh yeah, well, I've been from Bermuda, and the water here is like, it's a bathtub. It's not even refreshing. It's just don't go to Mexico in July. <laughs> Nice. Noted. All right. All right, guys. We'll wrap it here. This has been another good roundup. I will see you next week. Take care. Bye.